Who does the secret contacts? The Mossad, the secret intelligence agency of Israel. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Within Zionism. Here with Ozzy Fine and Moshe Schwartzberg. Today we have an amazing special guest, Dan Raviv. Dan, let's jump right into it. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I'm speaking to you from Washington, D.C., and uh, I've lived here for about 20 plus years. But before that, I was in Miami, before that in London for a dozen years, and before that in Tel Aviv with its sparkling beaches, and sidewalk cafes, and all the while lots of news. So all, all that, I got to say, uh, Ozzy and Moshe, was, uh, was because of my career at CBS News. I was on radio especially and some TV. Uh, so as you see, it took me to lots of countries. Uh, you got my last name, Raviv. I'm the son of two Israelis who moved to America back in the 1950s. So I was born here in America. Uh, but because of my CBS career, I got to be uh, in the Tel Aviv Bureau covering Israel uh, in the late 1970s, then London for a dozen years, then Miami, and now here in Washington. I also write books, and my favorite topics are topics about Israel. I have Every Spy a Prince that was a bestseller about uh, the Mossad and Israeli intelligence. Uh, another book on that subject, Spies Against Armageddon, uh, and even a book about the Marvel Comics Company and how it managed to come back Ooh. as a big movie company that's called Comic Wars. And how does that fit in? Two Israeli Americans, Israelis who moved here, were the people who rescued Marvel and turned it into a movie company. So Spider-Man, X-Men, uh, Iron Man, just say thank you to Yitzhak and Avi, two Israelis who rescued Marvel. Wow. Yeah, who, who, who knew <laughs> that, right? That's cool. What would the that world be really today cool. without them? <laughs> wow. I will, I will have to find that book and read it. That is really cool. That's yeah, I was wondering what that was. I was looking through what you do, and I saw like all this like Israel, Zionism, Mossad, this, secret agents, all this like Israel stuff. And then I see Marvel. I'm like, what's the connection? Yeah, a lot of people don't know. Two Israeli-Americans. And again and again, when they had the legal fight to pull the company out of bankruptcy and all that, they often would issue statements, we're Israelis. We don't give up. Or when there was another group that was filing a lawsuit to block their plan, they would say, we never surrender to terrorists. So, so at least the guys who rescued Marvel were kind of inspired by the Israeli model, you know, absolutely work hard, think outside the box, uh, be entrepreneurial. Uh, so I, you know, I had a chance to write about one particular case that everybody knows, you know, Marvel and Spider-Man and Iron Man. Um, but 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 to relate it to what I know about, which is how Israelis behave, um, especially when it when it succeeds, which, which with Marvel it did. And hey, you know, you two guys are sitting in Israel. Uh, in general, in general, Israel is a success story. So there's there's no covering that up. Story is not over yet. <laughs> yeah. Sure. <laughs> All right. So you wrote a few books on Israel. You want to tell us a little bit about these books and you know what made you decide to write them? Yeah. Well, you know, working for CBS News, um, uh, I had to be. Uh, 
you know, connected with all sorts of stories, covering everything in general, nothing to do with being Jewish, nothing to do uh, with being the son of two Israeli immigrants to America, just being a news guy, learning how to do news for radio and TV, getting a job at CBS uh, when I was still in my early 20s, you know, lucky me. Um, but, but they needed somebody to go overseas, to go specifically to the Tel Aviv Bureau of CBS when there was a big breakthrough. And uh, that would be Sadat, Anwar Sadat, the president of Egypt, deciding to visit Israel and Sadat and Prime Minister Menachem Begin of Israel negotiated, very tough process. The Americans with President Jimmy Carter were a big part of making it succeed. And there's a peace treaty, as you know, in 1979 between Israel and Egypt. And I covered that. Uh, and so lucky me, you know, CBS had me there in the Middle East. And I met a lot of people. And I met uh, another journalist, an Israeli. Uh, and I ended up writing uh, half a dozen books with him. And that's Yossi Melman. Yossi Melman wrote for Haaretz and He's back at Haaretz, by the way, and also contributes to a lot of films and, and all that. And we realized, we realized mainly because of his connections in Israel, that some of the older men in the Mossad, the famous spy agency that the whole world was, you know, afraid of, but, but they would respect the Mossad, but not understand it. We realized a lot of the old men were retired and willing to tell their stories. So the key to that first set of books was people who worked in the Mossad and were ready to, to, to set the record straight, explain why they did what they did, give a lot of details. Then because of Israel's system, we had to submit the manuscript to the military censor who made us take out some of the details, but that didn't ruin the story. The spirit was still there. So our first book was called Behind the Uprising because there was an uprising by the Palestinians, you may know, in uh, 1989, 1990, a lot of trouble in the West Bank. Uh, and as we looked into it, it was in part, you know, those Palestinian activists trying to prove that they're real nationalists and they don't need King Hussein of Jordan. Jordan used to have the West Bank from 1948 to 67. And so we, you know, we looked into that and found out that the Israelis had been meeting with King Hussein of Jordan in secret for years and years and years. And in 1989, that was our first book, Behind the Uprising, like part of an explanation, Israelis, Jordanians, and Palestinians, um, that Israel had secret talks with King Hussein. That means that Israel had secret diplomacy. Right? We could skip ahead and realize this still happens now all the time. How do you think you suddenly have relations with the United Arab Emirates and with Bahrain? And, you know, you know, right, we know from reports that there have been secret contacts, even with Saudi Arabia. But who does the secret contacts? The Mossad, the secret intelligence agency of Israel. And so as Yossi Melman and I looked into King Hussein, the Israelis, Jordan and Israel, we realized that the Mossad is like a new, what's well, like a, it's like an extra foreign ministry. It's a team of secret diplomats. Uh, and then, you know, we got to know more people who worked on that. So our second book was a history of the whole thing. Since the beginning of Israel in 1948, we realized we had met enough people, put together enough stories. And so we wrote Every Spy a Prince, uh, a history of Israel's intelligence community, we show that it's not only the Mossad, but there's an Agaf HaModi'in known as Aman, the intelligence wing of the Israeli 
army of the Israeli Defense Force. Um, there's also, uh, uh, well, uh, you know, we, we even had secret intelligence agencies that helped get Soviet Jews, you know, out of the Soviet Union. Uh, and, and we just found there were different parts of Israeli intelligence, and we even included Shin Bet, known to Israelis as Shabak. Is the security services like Israel's FBI. So you can tell that as a son of Israelis, I kind of, you know, got it right away. I got some of the Hebrew lexicon. I can understand what the people are talking about. I was lucky to have an Israeli co-author. So, you know, managed to do that book, Every Spy of Prince. And the Middle East became super hot in 1990 when Saddam Hussein, the dictator of Iraq, invaded Kuwait. And the result was the first Gulf War, when the United States put together a coalition to actually invade Iraq, throw the Iraqis out of Kuwait, and everybody in America wanted to read books about the Middle East, including Every Spy a Prince, uh, even though our book wasn't so much about Saddam Hussein. But, you know, he was in there. He was a character. In 1981, the Israelis had sent their air force to destroy Saddam Hussein's nuclear reactor in Baghdad. So Saddam Hussein was obviously an enemy of Israel. And then Saddam Hussein actually launched Scud missiles at Israel during that first Gulf War. Uh, and so again, our, our book sold fantastically. It was a bestseller in the New York Times bestseller list for 15 weeks. And that meant that suddenly publishers actually wanted to publish books by Raviv and Melman. And well, therefore, we were able to sell more book ideas. So just one more I'll mention, and that is Friends Indeed. It's a history of the U.S.-Israeli relationship. It's published in 1994. Some things have changed. The Obama period was different. The Trump period has been different. But all of the patterns were set by 1994. And so, you know, people might still find that book interesting. Friends Indeed, Inside the U.S.-Israel Alliance, in writing that book, um, we met all the people who built up the friendship between the U.S. and Israel. Politicians, artists, musicians, billionaire investors. Um, so, you know, I, I love this. I mean, as you can see, my life has been the U.S.-Israel relationship, right? Son of Israelis, born in the United States. And now as a journalist and a book writer, I get to write about that, those subjects. It's been great. Wow, sounds like really interesting books. I would definitely love to read those. That, that's that's really special. All, all available on Amazon, all available on Kindle and all the other readers, you bet. All right, so I want to ask you, how did you get in touch with everyone? Like the, you, when you wrote the book, how did you get in touch with all these people? <laughs> Listen, I, I, Club, hope a lot, these I, I hope a lot of people hear your podcast because there's got to be a story not there. It's just an individual story. It's the nature of your country. Right? Your podcast is within Zionism, so let's say that it's all about the Israeli style of everything. So we're not going to talk about cooking and socializing right now, but maybe a little bit about socializing. You have a very small country, right? Your population is about 9 million people, but you can imagine even when we, uh, we started writing books um, uh, 30 years ago, the population was more like five and a half, six million. You didn't even have the influx of Jews from Russia and the former Soviet Union. So I'm saying you had a small country and we're starting our research you know, into the intelligence community and what Israeli spies who had been stationed all over the world and had battled Palestinian terrorists, who would be willing to talk? 
but in a tiny society like Israel, where everybody knows everybody, and somebody has an uncle or an aunt or a grandfather or a, you know who had been in the in the secret services. Oh, my Saba, my grandfather loves to talk about it. He loves to talk about it. We would find out just you know socially from people. You have a grandfather who was in the early intelligence work of Israel when Israel was a new country in 1948, and he likes to talk about it. <laughs> Hello. We're the guys you should talk to. So I would say that the strength of that was Israel being a small, talkative country. Um, it's also usually Israel's nature that people kind of want to do a little one-upmanship, right? You think you were in a secret unit. I was in a secret unit. Um, and so... And so all the time we had... Yeah, that's everyone in this country. Yeah, we had Israelis <laughs> who wanted to correct each other and all that. And you could really put together a story. I will tell you this, in the United States, a country of more than 300 million people, uh, it's not as easy to find former CIA and FBI people. And it's not so much in their nature, even after retiring, to talk, 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 talk. It's kind of in your nature, my dear Israelis. It's in your nature. Yeah, in, the, in this country, everyone, everyone drafts, you know, so everyone's like, it's like a known question. Like, I, I, I didn't even draft yet. I'm 18, and yet I'm in Mechina, and I've been on the train on the way to Tel Aviv, and, like, people will literally just come up to me and just start conversation, where'd you serve? I'm like, I'm 18. Or even, like, when I was 17, people would ask me, and I'm like, I'm 17, I, I didn't draft yet. <laughs> yeah. It's just like, that, well, that's, that's like a good question. point. It means that, yeah. It means that your national service of whatever kind in order to help your country, because, you know, a lot of guys and some women as well, you know, did, did the military, then got chosen by the intelligence agencies, said, wow, this woman, this young lady is fantastic at computers and software. We're going to bring her into our special technological intelligence units. And, you know, uh, you know, if you know even the fictional TV series Tehran, you know, which ran in Hebrew recently in Israel, uh, but is now starting to go worldwide on Apple Plus. Um, you know, the, the, the fictional woman from Israel was just that, a hacker who worked for the Israeli military intelligence in hacking, and then they send her to Tehran, you know, to do a, a job there. Um, it's not, you know, it's fictional, but it's very believable that that's the kind of thing that happens. My point is that what you do to, to protect your country has it becomes part of your life and what people talk about and you know be careful you're not supposed to give all sorts of intelligence details you know in very <laughs> sensitive times taking the train to jerusalem or haifa you know there there were more serious warnings don't talk openly on the train or the bus about where your unit is or where it's going next week you know uh, you know it's funny israel's very very talkative but also very security conscious and uh, I've been in a lot of countries where, where they say, I can't believe how blah, blah, blah all the Israelis are. They're not careful enough. So I'm just saying, you know, from an intelligence, counterintelligence point of view, uh, there are spies for Hezbollah inside Israel. Many years ago, there were lots of spies from Russia and the communist countries in Israel. And, and there used to be serious warnings to Israelis, don't talk about your military service too much in the open you know on trains and buses so there's a yeah, thought so for you too. I, I think there it also like a lot of it comes from the from like a point of like pride i like a lot of people who serve are just like so proud of what they do and like 
even if it's supposed to like supposed to be top secret, somebody would be so proud and like have to talk about it. Um, well, you see now how we got enough material to write a whole bunch of books on the Israeli yeah. intelligence. <laughs> People are proud. You see? Now you yeah. got it. Um, when I was actually having trouble, like, I mean, I'm still having trouble, like, deciding where exactly I want to serve in the army. Um, so my dad has a friend who's been in the army since he was 18. I don't know how old he is now, but late 40s, early 50s, I don't know. Um, so when I was talking to him, I was hoping uh, he would help me out, which he did a little bit. But one thing he told me is, like, don't, don't talk about it too much with other people. Don't let too ah, many people go. know where you're going to serve or where you want to serve. Because if you end up there, it's not good that so many people know where it is and what it is. And not like it shouldn't be such a public thing. By the way, I don't know how many of our podcast listeners know that uh, specifically being a pilot in the Air Force, which now, again, some women are doing, too, used to be all male. That was that was so sensitive and secret. Pilots were the elite so what base are you at? Do you fly F-15s or F-16s, now F-35s, uh, you know, for elite pilots? That was considered especially secretive. And, you know, once in a while, if a pilot got interviewed on TV or the newspaper, you wouldn't give their full name, right? We spoke with a pilot. His name was Iran or, you know, or Iran Bet, you know, his last his, his initial. Um, have you noticed that? Is that still? Yeah, yeah. Good? So there's a lot of, um, there's a website to like do research on the army. It's, I don't know, Meitav, I don't know if you know what that is or if any of the listeners know what it is. It's, bas it's basically the, before you draft into the army, they're the part of the army, the unit that is helping you actually get to the point where you're an actual soldier. That's just in short. In short, yeah. So on their website, they have like, they offer a lot of, they give a lot of information on all the units. Um, so let's say me, for example, when I'm trying to look for a unit that I want to, that I want to be in, um, I'll, I'll go to that website and I'll look through the units. So there's a, a bunch of the units, um, not going to say which, <laughs> um, but like the, it literally says like classified, like there's some units that it can't even give you the minimum information. Yeah, even maybe the four-digit or three-digit number. Well, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, what, are you, what are you talking about? I don't know what you're talking about. But, but, but have you noticed that? Some, is that? I think that's still true sometimes in TV interviews, people doing certain kinds of work for the military, for the IDF. You, 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 they don't give the full name. Yeah. Or they interview, they interview pilots who are wearing the entire, you know, aviator's breathing yeah. apparatus or mask. Or they blur out the faces. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so... It's the, the thinking behind that, which is sort of weird, again, is that they're doing their job when necessary. They're, you know, going to bomb some enemy of Israel and some other country, you know, wherever, maybe nearby in the Gaza Strip. Um, uh, and, and so, like, what's what's the harm of identifying them that there somehow will be a revenge attack on them in Israel or maybe when they go on vacation to Europe? Yeah, you know, it's weird. So, again, because they're the elite defenders of Israel. Just better to keep their identity out of it. Yeah. It's a it's a fascinating part of, of the purposes, reality. Yeah. Amazing. Okay, yeah. so let's let's move on. You said before that you worked at CBS News. Um, as an American Jew, how does being a Jew in America, working at a news station, shape your career? Well, all I can tell you is certainly when it comes to the Jewish people in the newsroom, we were, and I know they still are 
a lot more than 2% of the newsroom happened to be Jewish because for various reasons, uh, cultural reasons, history reasons, uh, Jews like to be, often like to be writers, storytellers, journalists. Uh, it, it's just something that Jews have liked to do. A lot in the United States, part of the explanation was some professions were closed to Jews and you couldn't study those things and couldn't possibly get to be a member of those clubs all that, most of that is pretty much gone, but all of it added up to uh, journalism has been very popular among Jewish people. Obviously in the current realities, even if you watch CNN and you see various anchors or presenters who I happen to know pretty much who's Jewish and who isn't, um, a famous one, of course, is Wolf Blitzer, of course. Uh, but uh, you know, people have different levels. Are they Jewish or not? If you get to know them or people who work in the newsroom with them, some of them do take the holidays off and some of them don't. Some of them, a few don't work on Friday night and Saturday for Shabbat. Most seem to if they're in journalism. You get the point. So in my life, you know, not even a concern. What was interesting to me is that I had this job in New York at the headquarters of CBS News when Sadat visited Begin when Egypt and Israel started negotiating peace uh, in 1977 and into 78. And uh, when, when it was clear that CBS News needed more people who know the region to go over there to be in Cairo or Tel Aviv, um, it was just an advantage. Hi, I said to my bosses, I speak quite a lot of Hebrew. I'm the son of two Israelis. I've been in Israel a few times. I could move tomorrow. Now, with any major American corporation, you don't usually find an employee who says, I could move tomorrow. I was a single guy, too. So I don't have a family. You don't have to move the whole family. You know, major corporations, they help you sell your house, buy you all the tickets, plant you in the new country, you know, with two months in a hotel. I was the cheap guy who said, I, I could go tomorrow. So you know what? I pretty much went tomorrow. Um, and so that was back in uh, July of 1978. And so it was only an advantage, you know, being Jewish, of Israeli parentage, that my company already knew me. I was a trusted writer and producer in the newsroom in New York of the National Radio News on CBS. Um, and they trusted me. And so there was no question like, oh, well, uh, he speaks Hebrew. He's probably biased and he only likes the Israeli side. No, there, there really were no, no issues like that, at least for me because I'd proven myself professionally. I just wanna make a contrast because later in my career, I was in England in the London Bureau of CBS for 12 years, uh, still no problem for me with CBS, but I saw the British system. And because the British media are not automatically pro-Israel or understanding of Israel or understanding of Jews, or in, in, in Britain, in the United Kingdom, the percentage of Jewish people is 0.5%. Wow. Pretty much only in London and Birmingham and a little bit of Manchester, you know, a little bit, but very small percentage. So there's not as much That's understanding interesting. I, and comfort. I have like a lot of British friends here. Well, uh, I, I'm not gonna say in general, you know, British Jews uh, are more likely to make Aliyah because they don't feel they're totally accepted back in their country of Britain. But that was my observation. But no, I'm just saying, like, because there's so many, yeah. like, I have a lot of English friends here. I would figure that there'd be a bigger community there. Oh, well, 0.5% of the UK, very tiny. No, the result is sort of look at, look at it the other way, Ozzy, which is 
they don't have such a comfortable home, such a comfortable place in society in the United Kingdom. Many, so many people rest, are successful, of, of course. It occurs in the United States, most Jews feel very comfortable. You don't have the push for Aliyah. You get Aliyah, you get waves of it for different reasons, different groups of Jews, of course. But I noticed in England that uh, for a British journalist at my equivalent, the BBC, it wasn't as comfortable. And if they worked on Middle East issues, there was the assumption by their bosses well, you're Jewish, so you're probably going to be biased on this issue. Ooh, ooh, I didn't face that at all. So I'm curious, um, you as a Jewish pro-Israel, did you have to deal with any like anti-Semitism or like you ever have to like cover something you didn't want to cover or like any anti-Semitic coworkers? A little bit there. I remember some uh, managers who thought that I want to spend too much time on Middle East issues. And most Americans aren't that interested, so why do you want to do that? And I would sort of go, look, the president right now issued a new Middle East peace plan. You know, everyone should be really interested. And my managers would say, yeah, but Americans aren't very interested. You know, Dan, you're interested. Pull back from that a little bit. But, but by the way, the only accusation was that I was very interested. Um, I have not been accused of being biased. And let's, let's look at a phrase you used, pro-Israel pro the existence of Israel, pro that the Jewish people need to have their own sovereign country, especially where we Jews were thousands of years ago in the days of King David, etc. Um, but does that mean in favor of everything the Benjamin Netanyahu government supports? Does that mean you think that Israel should stay in the West Bank forever? Does that mean you know anything in particular I always say and feel, let the Israeli people decide. I don't live in Israel. I don't vote in Israel. We see the outcome of the recent elections, you know, many years. Zionism, which I would say. I think Zionism yes. is divided into, you know, the, the history point of view, the, just the reality of it, and then the, and then the political side. The political side of Zionism well, well, is different. Oh, okay, I'll, well, 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 again, I'm going to, you know, point out the name of your podcast within yeah. Zionism. So that this leads me to, yeah, this leads me to my next question. It, I want to know. What okay, your... but so what, I just want to be clear again. It means that the interest in Israel and in Israel surviving and doing well is very strong in me. But I don't know whether the right wing parties are right or the left wing parties are right. And I absolutely, when asked by people to defend the notion of the so-called leftist or peace camp, what they would do with the territories, or Netanyahu's cabinet colleagues in the right-wing parties, what they would do, more settlements, maybe keeping most of the land, all the land. I can defend both of them. I don't know which of them is more likely to lead to peace. I just find it endlessly fascinating. So there's this one question that we ask every single one of our guests, and all the listeners already know what it is. So let's ask it to you also. How would you define Zionism? What does it mean to you? How do you define it? The belief that there should be a Jewish state, that the Jews are a people. Often a lot of confusion, by the way. Judaism is a religion. I sometimes hear that from some Americans I know. And frankly, uh, PLO people for a long time rejected accepting and recognizing Israel as the Jewish state. 
right? These PLO people would say, Jewish, Jewish is a religion. We don't get into religion. Any religion doesn't make a difference. Uh-huh, they're missing the point. Jews are not just a religion. We are a people, sometimes called an ethnicity. In British newspapers, sometimes they called us a race, a member of the Jewish race. Ooh, I didn't really like that because it seemed to exclude us, if you will. Yeah, but we are a people who certainly have sought sovereignty over land and a country. We can obviously observe that without any country of our own, horrible things like the Holocaust may happen, did happen, may happen. God forbid, ever happen again. Uh, and even in the Arab world, terrible discrimination. So all over the world, Jews had no country. So Jews are not a religious group. Zionism is the movement for the Jewish people to have their own sovereign nation. Remarkably, a democracy, remarkably, and, and this, this blows the minds of American people. Israel, few not Jewish. One quarter of the citizens are not Jewish. They have voting rights. There are parties representing Arab. Uh, Americans can't believe it. And so it's just, you know, as I say, endlessly fascinating. Um, and I think that the Jewish people have a right to their own country. So it's no surprise uh, that measures will be taken to ensure a Jewish majority in that country. But that's not about religion. That's about us as a people. So that, that's where I am on that. Great answer. All right, we got three and a half minutes left on Zoom. So before we, before we wrap up the episode, as someone from behind the scenes in the media, um, you know, a lot, a lot of people know that media tends to, you know, shape people's minds. What message would you have to send? Mm. Okay, there's this, a, a need for more information. In the age of the internet, it's amazing how you can check any fact very quickly. Of course, hopefully you'll go to factual uh, sites if you decide to Google, you know, something like uh, the, the Golan Heights history, who had it, right? It's not just Syria had it and then Israel captured it in 67. You know, there's even history before that of how the lines were drawn of Syria, Lebanon, the future state of Israel. There's so much to learn and it's so easy to get at on the internet, but be careful. There's so much wrong information and biased information. And so I think in general, people need more information. The trouble with journalistic articles in, the, in television and in newspapers is they don't have enough background. And so they just quickly tell you, you know, Israel wanting to keep the West Bank, approved settlements. Where's the background to that? What happened maybe in the 1920s and 30s in that area of land? Or any reminder that even Jordan doesn't want the West Bank back. So why have the UAE and Bahrain taken the attitude they have that Israel's okay, Israel is permanent. So now what do you do? You focus on the Palestinian issue. And if you wanna judge that, you need more information. And I will say this, I'm very against BDS because I don't think that Israel should be singled out. It's a double standard, therefore it's anti-Semitic. It's picking on the Jewish state, wanting some incredible high level of wishful thinking behavior and, and, and academics, and, and it, it tends to be usually some left-wing groups. They're taking the side of the perceived underdog, Palestinian with the underdog, of course, Palestinian people have lost again and again and again and again. Whose fault is it? Endless debate. 
Um, and so I just think there has to be a quest for more information and background. Whenever I do a journalistic report, even if it's short, I pride myself on including a little bit of history, a little bit of background. It gives, uh, it gives more understanding, I think. It was amazing having you on. This was a very, very interesting episode. We will love, to, like, we'll go look at those books and see what we can find, read them for sure. And I suggest everyone who is listening to this to go check them out. Uh, you can follow us wherever you listen to podcasts on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Leave, uh, give us a share, review, comment, all that fun stuff. And it was great having you, Ozzy. It was an amazing episode. We'll see you next week, guys. Thank you, Dan. Well, thank you. I'm on Twitter, at Dan Raviv, and the latest book is Spies Against Armageddon. All the best. Happy New Year. Good morning. And as I usually say, stay safe and have a great day. <laughs> <laughs>